And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. With the latest news about the poisoning in Russia of Putin opponent Alexei Navalny and all the stresses on our democracy, some of which are emanating from the Kremlin, I'm reaching into the best of the Axe Files vault for this 2018 conversation with Vladimir Karamurza, a valiant leader of the democracy movement in Russia, who himself has been the victim of poisoning twice. Vladimir Karamurza also is a former fellow at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. And I had another reason for choosing this particular conversation, because as you listen to Vladimir talk about the struggle for democracy in Russia, I hope you'll think about the obligations we have as Americans to participate in free elections and exercise our vote. Here's our conversation. Vladimir Karamorza, so good to be with you uh, so good to be with you this spring at the Institute of Politics. Um, you uh, you continue to be, despite the discouragement, we'll call it that, and people will understand what we mean later in this, a, uh, a huge force for change in Russia. But you kind of come by these instincts naturally. This is not a new thing. Your family has been involved in journalism, involved in activism, involved in the movement for reform. Tell me about the the family and and how you came to be who you are. Thank you, David. And it's wonderful to be at the Institute of Politics. It's great to be here on your podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for having me here. Uh, well, my grandfather was a historian and a journalist. My father was a historian and still is a historian and a journalist. And uh, I always thought that you know, when it, when it comes for me to choose my profession, I'm, I'm going to be whatever I will be, but I'm not going to be a historian and a journalist. Because, you know, <laughs> it has to stop somewhere. But then, of course, as, as these things happen, when it did come the time to choose, I, I did go, I did do history at university, and I, I did become a journalist. I began to work as a journalist from from the age of 16. I'm not doing that anymore now. Now I'm in, in, in full-time uh, politics. I'm an opposition politician. You can't really combine the two, obviously. But uh, I was for a while a historian and a journalist. And I'm from the generation whose first conscious political memory in Russia was the Democratic Revolution of August 1991. You know, the three days that changed the history of the world in so many ways. Um, tell me, was, tell me about that. Tell me about your memories of those days. Well, I was I was ten years old. This was 1991, uh, so uh, unfortunately too young to take part. My father did spend all three days and three nights of the revolution at the barricades uh, by the Moscow White House. Uh, but I was certainly old enough to... Did he do that as an activist or did he do that as a journalist? I don't know. He wasn't a journalist then. He was actually out... out he had a kind of a position of principle. He did not work under the communist regime. Uh, he thought... I mean, he, he gave you know, private lessons to students, but he never worked officially. He thought, he thought that would, you know, that would go against his principles to work while the communist regime was in power. Because of course, everything was the state, right? In mm -hmm. communist times, he could not work, not for the state in the Soviet Union. So he only became a journalist actually in 92. So when, when Russia was free from communist rule. So yeah, he was ju there just as a citizen as so many other people were. And this was a very formative experience for me, those three days. I was, uh, so, you know, when, when you're 10, uh, you're, in any country, in any situation, that's that's old enough to understand a lot of things. But certainly, when you're witnessing a revolution 
going on in front of your eyes. And that's, you, you definitely remember that. And that's, that's a lesson that I'm going to carry for as long as I live. And, you know, that. What are the images know, that you remember of that? Well, the way it started was so, you know, one morning uh, in August of 1991, we woke up uh, and all the television networks were showing Swan Lake, Tchaikovsky's ballet. All the other programs were switched off. Uh, and we saw tanks on the streets of our city because. The leadership of the Communist Party and the KGB decided to put an end to all these experiments with glasnost and democracy and perestroika and just go back to the what they considered the good old ways. And the leaders of that coup had absolutely everything at their disposal, or at least that's what it seemed. They had the state apparatus, the Communist Party machinery. They had the old, you know, television, radio, and the press. They had the military, of course. They had the police. And we should point out this was a coup against Gorbachev. Uh, right. It was more, actually, it was technically, it was a coup against Gorbachev. It was more, in reality, a coup against Boris Yeltsin, who just two months before then, in June of 1991, in the first ever direct election for head of state uh, in the history of Russia, in a thousand-year history of Russia, defeated the Communist Party's candidate by 57% to 17. Yeltsin ran as a candidate for the Democratic opposition. He got 57%, and the Communist Party candidate got 17%. And it was clear that you know, under his leadership, Russia would go in, in, into a, even a more radically democratic direction. And so these these uh, old apparatchiks in the KGB and the Communist Party leadership wanted nothing to do with it, so they decided to put an end to it you know, mm-hmm. once and for all. And so that morning, uh, they seized, uh, they didn't even have to seize it, they controlled them anyway, all television, press, radio, they switched off all the, all the programs except uh, you know, Swan Lake. Uh, Gorbachev was placed under house arrest in, in his uh, summer residence in Crimea. And we saw tanks on the streets of, of our city, on the streets of Moscow. You know, the same Soviet tanks that were sent to occupy Budapest, Prague, Vilnius. Uh, that day, they came to Moscow itself. And the leaders of that coup had absolutely everything at their disposal, right? They had the whole machinery of the state and the military and the KGB, which was the most formidable machine of political repression, uh, well, I think, in the history of the world. And they, and they had that. And, of course, they also had those tanks that we saw on our streets. The Russian citizens, the Muscovites, who refused to accept that, who refused to accept that coup, they had nothing except their own dignity and their determination to defend their freedom and a sense of what was right. And so they went into the streets in the tens of thousands and in hundreds of thousands, peaceful, unarmed citizens, and they stood in front of the tanks, and the tanks stopped and turned away. The uh, iconic image, of course, was Yeltsin himself jumping on top of the tank. Absolutely. This was one of the tank divisions that actually joined the demonstrators, went over to the side of the people, as so often happens in these events. And so by the evening of August 21st, so just three, not even full three days after the coup began, it was over. Um, you know, the crowds uh, went uh, to the Lubyanka Square, which was the site of the headquarters of the Soviet KGB, so in many ways the main symbol of of Soviet communist repression. And they tore down the statue of uh, Felix Dzerzhinsky, the founder of the KGB or the Chekhov, the NKVD, the Soviet secret police. Russia is a country of symbols. Symbols are very important in our country. So this is the most vivid symbol of that change, of that democratic revolution, the statue of Dzerzhinsky, the founder of the KGB, you know, hanging by a noose that, that it was lifted on, being taken down from its pedestal. And of course, eight years later, Vladimir Putin began with symbols as well. And in December of 1999, when he was still prime minister, this was 11 days uh, before he would become the leader of Russia, he went to the same place, to the Lubyanka Square, to the site of the old KGB, KGB headquarters, and officially unveiled a memorial plaque 
to Yuri Andropov. Now, Yuri Andropov was the chairman of the Soviet KGB, who oversaw one of the most repressive systems. He was the one who expanded the practice of so-called punitive psychiatry. This is when people, political dissidents, those who were opposed to the communist regime, were declared mentally insane and committed to psychiatric prisons, psychiatric hospitals where they were kept in torturous conditions. He was the one who set up a special department, a special directorate within the KGB, specifically uh, uh, aimed at targeting and, and suppressing political dissent. Uh, previously, as Soviet ambassador to Budapest, he oversaw the invasion of Hungary also in 1956. He was in many ways a symbol of, of, of Soviet political repression, and it was to this guy that Vladimir Putin officially unveiled a memorial plaque 11 days before he became acting president of Russia. You remember there was all these questions being asked publicly, who's Mr. Putin, you know, which direction he would take Russia? For anybody who's willing to heed the signals, there was the answer straight away. You know, um, I don't want to lose the thread of your own story, and I will get back to it in a second, but uh, describe to me where Putin was in all of this uh, when, at the beginning, when uh, Yeltsin uh, led uh, that uh, counter uh, movement against the coup and 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 took power because uh, Putin was a, a a product of the security establishment. There, he was an old KGB uh, apparatchik. Um, w w explain what happened with him during that decade and how he navigated that and what his mm -hmm. thoughts were. So, of course, the short answer is Putin was a nobody. Nobody had known who he was, uh, except some people at the city hall in St. Petersburg where he worked as a functionary, as, as a bureaucrat. I mean, he, he'd just come back in 1990 from, from his posting in East Germany as a KGB officer there. And in 91... Does that, uh, by the way, is that one of the reasons? There seems to be this odd relationship with Merkel that's like rife with tension uh, is that in part because he spent time there, and That's she was, as you know, she was from she East was Germany. From East Germany yes. Absolutely, and uh, I think I mean there's there's definitely a, there's definitely a connection to Germany, no doubt. But except you know, I remember this also when Putin was coming to power, a lot of people, especially a lot of wish, wishful thinkers in the West, who wanted to see Putin as a kind of a reformer, somebody who would continue the democratic trajectory. People would say that, well, you know, he spent so many years in, in working in Germany. Surely he, he would have been influenced by some of this. And, yes. uh, and, and this is correct. Not a democratic is, Germany. The problem is it was the wrong Germany, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, and in fact, uh, these people were right in a way because the political system that Vladimir Putin has built in Russia today very much in many ways resembles the political system that exists that existed in the in the in the German Democratic Republic, the East, the Communist East Germany. Because Communist East Germany, unlike the Soviet Union and many other Warsaw Bloc countries, was never officially a one-party state. It had a multi-party system on paper, and and the East German Parliament had several parties in it. Of course, all of them were, were just rubber stamps, and they, uh, you know enthusiastically supported the communist regime. This is exactly what we have in Russia today. We have a parliament that famously or infamously as its own speaker has described it, it's not a place for discussion. It does have several parties in it officially, but they all dance to the same tune uh, that is that's being played from the Kremlin. So in that sense, people were right. But so in the 90s, Putin rose very quietly, uh, very inconspicuously through the ranks of bureaucracy. First, the uh, local bureaucracy in St. Petersburg. He was deputy mayor in charge of international relations. Um, then, after the mayor of St. Petersburg lost the election in 1996 to his challenger, uh, Putin was taken to Moscow, began to work again as an official, as a bureaucrat in the uh, Kremlin administration, in the presidential staff. And then, 
literally in the last 18 months before he became president of Russia, he had this absolutely meteoric rise, becoming first the director of the FSB, which is the main domestic successor agency to the KGB, then secretary to the Security Council, then prime minister, and then finally president. I mean, if somebody said just six months before he became president that, you know, the next president of Russia will, will be Vladimir Putin, the vast majority of people would have responded, who? I mean, nobody knew this. This was an absolutely astonishing example of how to make a political figure from nothing. I mean, the first election Putin ever ran in in his life was the election for president. He had never run for anything ever. Um, and uh, I was, you know, last year I was um, in Yekaterinburg at the Yeltsin Presidential Center uh, for my for the screening of my documentary about Boris Nemtsov. And um, I had a few hours before the screening, so I, I went around the, the museum and the center. And by the way, it's absolutely amazingly done. If, if you ever have a chance, I, I, I really... Uh, and and remarkable in that uh, it is there. And yes. they, they allowed your screening. They, they have uh, these displays that are a absolutely. tribute I mean, to Yeltsin. And to be honest, it's more, more of a museum for an era than for a human being, than for mm -hmm. a person. It's it's done in the tradition of US presidential libraries. In fact, it was uh, in part uh, uh, done by people who um, who have built the Clinton presidential library in, in Arkansas. So it was done with, a, with American participation, uh, but also a prominent Russian uh, film director, uh, Lungin, participated in its, in its creation. And I don't know how they do this. In fact, I, I, I telephoned the day after my film screening, I called uh, Tatyana Yamasheva, who is President Yeltsin's daughter. She's, one, she's in charge of the center. And I said, I don't know how you do this, but thank you. This is such an oasis in today's Russia. We have this deafening propaganda on all national television networks, which of course are all now controlled by the state, you know, saying how, uh, talking about the decadent West, talking about the horrible 90s, and, 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 you know, Yeltsin's period is presented as this horrible time of humiliation and whatever else they make up. And and then I go to Yekaterinburg to this, you know, to the Yeltsin Presidential Center, and, and it's still, by the way, a government-affiliated institution. I mean, the chairman of the board is the current chief of staff of the Kremlin, so it's not, it's not a private entity, it's a state institution. Of course, he was a former president of Russia. Uh, and yet, it presents a very honest, uh, I think, very, very much complete picture of, of that complicated period. It was no doubt complicated. There were many difficulties. I remember I lived through them. I lived, I lived in Russia in the 90s. I remember the difficulties. There were a lot of them. And a lot of them were caused by the legacy of seven decades of totalitarian rule. Uh, they also had a lot to do with the fact that, for example, you know, oil price back in the 90s was $9 a barrel. Mm -hmm. uh, in the first years of Putin, it was, you know, more than 100. There is a big difference in that. But also the 90s were a period when we had democracy in Russia. It was a period when we had free competitive elections, you know, where the results were actually determined by how people voted. That's a revolutionary concept for Russia today. We had independent media in the 90s with, uh, you know, most television networks in the country actually owned, privately owned and independent of the state. That's, again, that's unimaginable today. Television networks that would offer independent and professional news coverage and political satire and, and analysis. And, and this was also... Your this father was also worked at one of those networks. He was a, yes, he was a news anchor, actually, at NTV, which was the largest and most popular independent television network in Russia in, in the 90s. And that was the first, one of the first targets, in fact, the first target of Vladimir Putin when he came to power. The first thing he made sure was to, uh, to shut down or take over all independent uh, television networks in the country. But one of the exhibits in that Yeltsin Presidential Center in Ekaterinburg, it's called the Hall of Successors. And it's about the people whom Yeltsin at different times wanted to succeed him as president of Russia. And so 
that hall is literally it's kind of it's it's dark in there you, you walk in and, and suddenly you see you know those faces eliminated of people around you and, and of course in, with a, with an explanation of who they are their names their biographies and 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 the, the list goes from boris nemtsov to vladimir putin and you can kind of see uh, with every succeeding uh face it becomes worse and worse and worse and worse. And finally, we end up with, with what we have today. Um, I want to ask you, uh, just to close out this point, what is it about Putin that allowed him to make that meteoric rise? How, how is it that he orchestrated that, uh, that, that rapid journey from obscurity to, uh, to power? There were many factors, but the... The most decisive one was the second war in Chechnya, which was the backdrop to his coming to power. And the, it all began in August of '98, when, uh, largely because of the global economic crisis and especially the uh, East Asian financial crash, uh, we had a big economic collapse in Russia. The government had to default on its debts. There was a massive devaluation of the currency, and that was the time when the last. Uh, to date, at least, the last liberal government, uh, liberal-minded reformist government in Russia left power. And after that, every prime minister was connected to Soviet secret services, Evgeny Primakov, then Sergei Stepashin, and then Vladimir Putin. Uh, so that financial crisis really damaged the political prospects of, of, of liberal reformers, the pro-democracy reformers in Russia. Another factor was the uh, the uh, NATO military campaign against uh, uh, Yugoslavia in the spring of '99 that really ratcheted up the anti-Western sentiments in Russian society, and that was also an important factor for for damaging yep. the political standing. I wanted to ask about that uh, and uh, what you think the West did wrong in the '90s that helped facilitate uh, potentially, if 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 you believe this, mm-hmm. uh, Putin in the in the way in the rapid embrace of countries into NATO? Or uh, were there things that the West should have done differently? Uh, and obviously, some of it is assistance to mm-hmm. Russia, but, uh, you know, different kinds of assistance. But that's all, uh, you know, it's a discussion I've had with a number of people mm-hmm. as to maybe we should have played our cards differently. Uh, yes, I think there are a lot of things the West could have done differently. First of all, I want to say that I'm not one of those who who blames you know the the, the problems of Russia in the 90s in the West, or, mm-hmm. or who says that the West is at fault for you know. No, understood. For Putin but I'm, to power. But I, but, I mean, there are people who say that, but that yes, would frankly be too. I'm easy. not saying that, but I'm, uh, and, and neither am I. I think mm-hmm. that would be frankly too easy, too simplistic, and not true. And the main mistakes that led to this authoritarian restoration that we have with Vladimir Putin in Russia today, the main mistakes were made. Uh, by us, by Russians, uh, by, by especially by the, the the first reformist governments of President Yeltsin, not necessarily, or I don't, I don't, I don't think at all through any bad intentions or through any malice, but just mostly because they were unprepared for the. You know, when power falls on you in three days, yes, it's difficult to be ready. So, well, in, mistakes, in a country where you were trying to develop civil civil society that didn't exist, democratic processes that were not there. Um, I mean right. that, and, and and you know, uh, in uh, in contrast to a system that had been mm-hmm. ingrained for for so long. Absolutely, and there were so many mistakes made right from the beginning, including I think the main mistake that was was made by the Russian government, by the democratic Russian government, was that it was not prepared to fully come to terms with the totalitarian past, and to account for all the crimes and to open up all the archives. 
and to conduct lustrations like other countries of Central and Eastern Europe did, where you actually place some limitations on the people who are involved in the crimes of the old regimes from holding active positions of power. We never had that. We never had the full opening of the archives. We never had a full trial of the old regime, or we never even had the, you know, anything like the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions like they had in South Africa after the fall of apartheid. So we never had any of this. And if you don't really turn the page, and if you don't really account, you know, for the past, then it's easy to repeat it. And, and this, is, this is what we're seeing today. So that's, uh, and there are many other mistakes that were made. Of so course, about, about the West. Too. But the West, I think the biggest mistake that Western countries made with regard to the democratic Russia in the 90s was that they were not ready and not willing to fully embrace and fully accept the new democratic Russia as an equal partner, as an equal partner in their own ranks. I'll give you a specific example. On December 26, 1991, one day after the red flag came down on the Kremlin for the very last time, there was a North Atlantic Council meeting at the NATO headquarters in Brussels. All the NATO ambassadors sitting there, um, led by the Secretary General Manfred Werner. And the Russian ambassador walks in and he hands a letter from President Yeltsin addressed to the NATO Secretary General Manfred Werner. And that letter, it's since been published, now we can find it online. Uh, it's uh, That letter signed by the President of Russia officially raised the prospect uh, of future Russian membership in NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It never even received a response. Hmm. And this is just one example. There were many others. I mean, the, uh, unlike, for I mean, example... Putin preyed on those kinds of things to suggest... I don't, I don't know, not that, not that particularly, but the sense that the West was... Uh, I know privately he complained to American leaders the West was disdainful of Russia, the rest, West mistreated... Russia, uh, it, 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 in confluence with these other things, Chechnya, um, the economic collapse, and so on, it helped, you know, it helped make his case. I think another important factor was that, for example, all the other Central and Eastern European countries that were once part of the Soviet-led bloc, they were all offered prospective membership mm-hmm. in the European Union to incentivize their reforms, both political and economic. And it served, I can tell, I have many friends and colleagues in, you know, in Central Europe and the Baltic states. And I can tell you that this prospect of membership in the European Union, of, of, of European and Euro-Atlantic integration, so both NATO and EU, it played an enormous role. It, it was a massive incentive for them to, you know, to, to conduct those often very difficult and very unpopular reforms, but they had a goal ahead of them that they worked towards. And now all of these countries are members of NATO and the yes. European Union. We never had that prospect. <laughs> Russia never had that prospect, even in theory. There's no good reason for us not to. I mean, Russia is a European country. And the rules of the European Union, the Copenhagen criteria said that if you fulfill those, of course, there are, there are very clear criteria that needs to be fulfilled, no question about it. But uh, it, it does say this document that the, and the Treaty of Maastricht reiterated it, reiterated it, that any European country that fulfills the Copenhagen criteria should be eligible for membership in the European Union. Russia is a European country. We will never offer this even in theory. With NATO already uh, talked about about this example from 91 and it was you know this mm-hmm. is just this is just one thing that stands out that stands out there were many of them and the kind of the astonishing thing is that the same western governments that refused to fully embrace and fully accept a democratic russia in the 90s were suddenly really open and, and very willing to accept vladimir putin when he came to power um we already talked about this you know how putin began his rule um with, with the unveiling of the memorial plaque to Andropov. In the first year of his presidency, he reinstated the Stalin-era 
uh, music of the Soviet national anthem as the national anthem of Russia. <coughs> Again, Russia is a country of symbols. Uh, if anybody was asking which direction Putin was going to take the country, that was the answer. And very quickly, he went from symbols to actions as he began to shut down or take over independent television, television networks, as he began to go after the opposition and the supporters of the opposition when he jailed Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who was the richest man in Russia and who was, who was an active supporter of opposition parties and opposition candidates, also supported civil society groups and exposed government corruption. He was put in prison in October of 2003 as a very kind of vivid symbol, vivid message that if, if you do what he does, you're going to end up like him. Then he began to rig elections. And in 2003, for the first time since the end of Soviet rule, European observers have, have assessed the Russian election as being not fair. I remember that election very well. I was a candidate for the Russian parliament in 2003. So all of these things were happening. And all the while, leaders in the West on both sides of the Atlantic, both in Europe and, and, and here in North America, were basically rolling out a red carpet for Vladimir Putin. I mean, I'll never forget in June of 2003, literally two days after Vladimir Putin pulled the plug on the last independent nationwide television network in Russia, literally two days, that's not a figure of speech, two days. Two days after he did that, he was treated to a state visit to the United Kingdom with a lavish reception uh, at the city of London at the London Guildhall with a royal reception at Buckingham Palace. And I remember I was there, I was, a, I was working as a journalist at the time in London. I was, I was there, I saw this with my own eyes. I was absolutely mind-boggling. I mean, everybody toasting him, you know, singing, oh, he's a jolly good fellow and all that. I and mean, what kind of message does a dictator get when, when, when this happens? And it's the same things uh, The same things were happening on this side of the Atlantic. I mean, look, George W. Bush hosted uh, Mr. Putin and his family retreat, Kenny Bunkport. He famously or infamously looked into his eyes and got a sense of his soul. Yes. Uh, and, and, and when President Obama came in instead of President Bush, he did the same thing. He declared a reset in relations. He praised Vladimir Putin for the great work he was doing on behalf of the Russian people and so on and so on. His, so, uh, his uh, not to be defensive in any way about this, but you know, his relationship was primarily with Medvedev and... Um, I remember the, I remember the the first conversation he had with Putin when we were in Russia was a pretty uh, contentious one. But uh, your point is taken. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. Let me just uh, ask you about your own journey because you, you anyone who's listening to this probably hears that you, you, there's a little bit of a British influence in your in your speech. You spent some time during your uh, youth in 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 uh, in Britain. Uh, how did that come about, and how did that impact your development? I spent a few years in the UK uh, as a as a student. I went. To, to finish school there and then went to university. Um, I read history at, at Cambridge. And also while I was still a student, I began to work as a journalist. So from the age of 16, uh, I worked as a journalist. There was a, at that time, don't forget it's the 90s, we had a real independent press then. It's not like it is today. And there was a, there was a new publication that opened in 1997. Um, it was called Novi Izvestia. Uh, it, was a, it was a daily newspaper. And they had just opened and I... Um, uh, wrote a fax to them. You know, we still had faxes. Yes. <laughs> Some of us still remember that. Yes. Uh, and um, I basically said, you know, I, you just opened up. I presume you, st you don't have a correspondent in London. I'm, I'm a student. I'm really interested in writing for you. 
you know, would you would you be willing to take me on as, as a journalist? And, and I got a response back, or again by fax, uh, and, and the editor-in-chief said, sure, try. And so I tried, and I remember my, my first article was, this was in 1997, I was 16 years old, it was about the vote in the British Parliament about banning the fox hunt, something that was a centuries-old tradition, but of course because of the cruelty and then the campaign yeah. led by animal rights groups, they, they banned it. And that was my first ever publication. I think I'm always going to remember this. And so I, I was still in school, uh, in high school, but I already began to work as a journalist. And this continued for a few years. Then I went to, uh, then I began to work for a different Russian newspaper, Commerçant. Uh, it was kind of the main daily political newspaper in Russia. Um, and, and From I went Britain? To, yes, still as the UK correspondent. Uh, and I was uh, I was accepted at Cambridge to, to do history. <laughs> Going back to the conversation, like my grandfather and my yes. father, I also decided to do history. And my specialty was actually in the, in Russian parliamentary history. As you know, Russia was the last great power in Europe to, to have a parliament. Our parliament was only established in 1905 and elected in 1906. That was kind of my area of specialty. And then uh, when I graduated from, from Cambridge, this was in 2003, uh, so 15 years ago now, I um, immediately went back to uh, return to Russia, as I was always planning to. And that same year, in December of 2003, Uh, I ran as a candidate for the Russian parliament for the State Duma. That was that election that we already talked about that was uh, the first election in Russia since the end of Soviet rule that was assessed by European observers as, as not fair. They actually, they had a brilliant definition. They said it's still free. It, they said it's free, but not fair. It was still free in a sense that we could p- participate because nowadays most opposition candidates are taken off the ballot ahead of time. So people don't even have a chance to vote for them, for us. Uh, back then, we could still make it to the ballot Um I was a candidate in, in a district in, in the south of Moscow. Um, I was the youngest candidate in that parliamentary election. I was 22 years old. And I'm proud to say that I was the only candidate. I'm also sorry to say that I was the only candidate because I wish there were more. But I was the only candidate in, in the country that was jointly backed by the two main pro-democracy opposition uh, parties, the Union of Right Forces led by Boris Nemtsov and the Yablaka led by Grigory Evlinsky. Russian opposition is notoriously uh, unable to agree you know, among themselves, among ourselves, you know, they keep bickering about small issues instead of focusing on, on what should unite us. But but in my district, we managed to unite. And uh, I actually had a pretty good result for, for a 22-year-old with no money. I came second out of 10 candidates, got about 24,000 votes. But of course, none of us won. And that was that was a watershed election. 2003 was a watershed year generally, because three things happened that year that basically completed Putin's transformation of, of, of Russia from from the imperfect and flawed but nevertheless a functioning democracy that, that it was when, it, when he came to power to the authoritarian state that it is today. In 2003, he shut down the last independent television network. This was in June. In October of that year, he arrested and jailed Mikhail Khodorkovsky, the richest man in Russia who supported the opposition ahead of the elections, who supported civil society groups, who exposed government corruption. And that was a clear message that this behavior would not be tolerated. And that same year in December, at the end of the year, we had that not fair election that resulted in the elimination of genuine opposition from parliament. And since then, so for almost 15 years now, the Russian parliament has been basically a rubber stamp and as its own speaker famously described it, not a place for discussion. And uh, you you continue to work as a journalist. You went to Washington uh, for a while. After so losing that election, right. I, right. But I, I think the thing that would be confusing to Americans is you were a journalist Uh, on the one hand, and you were also in pol- politics on the other. So mm-hmm. explain how that... Absolutely. Worked. Well, and every, I mean, normally that would be, of course, a clear conflict of interest if you're a journalist, politician at the same time. This wasn't the case with me because I was always a journalist covering 
uh, foreign issues, international issues. So first I was a journalist in the UK, so covering British politics. And then when in 2004, I was offered a job of Washington bureau chief for RTVI, which was a, which was a small privately owned satellite television network in Russia. Uh, I was covering US politics and you know, US presidential campaigns. So it had nothing to do with, with Russian politics. And of course I was always a politician in Russia. All my political activity was, was domestic in Russia. So I, mean, I traveled back and forth all the time. And, and it was actually as a journalist that I met uh, Boris Nemtsov. In yes, and that's exactly what I wanted to ask you about. Tell, tell me about him. He was obviously a huge influence in your life. He is, um, I will always, always consider this the, the greatest blessing of my life to have worked with this man. Uh, side by side for more than fifteen years, uh, we we met when uh, when I was eighteen, and he had so I was a, I was a student and a journalist, um, and he was he just recently resigned from the Russian government as deputy prime minister. He was running for for parliament, uh, the election which he would win, and he would become the leader of the opposition in the Russian Duma. So this was in nineteen ninety nine during the campaign when we met, and you know what struck me immediately was his attitude um, and his outlook. I mean I've. In my now almost two decades in Russian politics, I have dealt with and worked with a lot of political leaders. Uh, and I can tell you that a lot of them, you know, they would absolutely make it clear to you, you know, where they are and where you are. Uh, you know, if you work with somebody who was, for example, a one-time senior government official, he would make it clear that he was a one-time senior government official in his whole attitude. You know, that he would show that he's somewhere up there and you're somewhere down down here. When I met with Boris, uh, so again, he was just just resigned as deputy prime minister. He was leading a, a party in the parliamentary elections, and I was well, I was I was a nobody. I was an eighteen-year-old you know, student journalist, um, and yet he would never sense the distance. He always, and that was one of his. I think that was one of his defining qualities. He always treated you as a human being, regardless of status regardless of position, regardless of any of these formalities. He always treated a human being as a human being. And this is, you know, this is the quality that was with him always. And uh, so that's when we began to work uh, at the end of, of the 90s in 1999. And um, I've worked with him until the day he was killed. So for more than 15 years, and I've seen you, him in many different situations. And you viewed him as the the best hope you and you viewed him as the 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 leader behind whom uh the dem democracy movement could unify uh is that a fair statement he was the best president russia never had uh he he would have been if had he become president of russia as, as boris yeltsin wanted him to by the way he, he was he, he made it clear including publicly and and his family, friends, and, and colleagues, Yeltsin's family, friends, and colleagues are, are still ready to confirm it today. He wanted Boris Nemtsov to succeed him as president. And I'm certain that had he lived, he would have one day become the leader of Russia because we simply have no people of such stature left. I mean, he combined so many things in himself. I mean, he, first of all, he had government experience, which is something very few of us have because Putin has now been in power for almost two decades, right? We now have an entire generation that grew up under this regime. We, we haven't had the opportunity to have government experience, those of us in opposition. He had that, and he had very successful government experience. In the 90s, that were generally speaking a very difficult time economically in Russia. The Nizhny Novgorod region, where he was an elected governor, was, was an economic miracle. I mean, he had people from all over the world, including from the US. You had the congressional leaders, Dick Gephardt and Newt Gingrich, go to Nizhny Novgorod to witness with their own eyes to see how, how is it possible that in the middle of this economic chaos, you have this one region 
which successfully conducted privatization, uh, which successfully defeated inflation, which which showed uh, really impressive economic growth figures, all of this while the rest of the country was struggling. And so he had very successful government experience in the 90s. Uh, he was somebody who was an absolutely brilliant communicator. I mean, I've, again, I've spent a long time now in, in, in politics and I've not seen anybody, at least in Russia, who was able to communicate with people the way he was. And that's, as obviously we know, that's a very important talent you need in, to be successful in politics. I mean, he, he could walk into a room, you know, with four or 500 people, a hostile audience, you could feel the tension in the air, and he would speak and, 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 and debate and argue and answer questions and, and, and respond back. And you would do this for an hour, two hours, three hours. After he was done, you know, two thirds of the room was on his side. I've never, I've never seen anybody else in Russia do this. He was able to speak to very different audiences. That's another, that's another very important trait that not many people have. I mean, he was able to speak effectively to, you know, a United States senator or a European parliamentarian, and to a local, you know, market saleswoman somewhere in Yaroslavl, on the Volga region. And and that's actually how he won his last election in 2013, when you know he had no access to the media, no access to the official political process, but he just literally walked with his own two feet uh, around the city and convinced enough people to win the election. And I will tell you that when I, uh, when I interviewed, had a conversation with uh, John McCain, uh, he took me into his Senate office and showed me his memorabilia. And among the memorabilia was a, uh, a portrait of Boris Nemtsov. Uh, and when he spoke about him, he uh, he he spoke with tears in his eyes uh, about him and, and and his admiration uh, for him. Obviously, those those talents that you speak of, that leadership capacity, is why he was gunned down two hundred yards from the Kremlin. Absolutely. I mean, I had um, I was interviewed recently by. Uh by an American journalist, from, I don't remember the name of the magazine now, but he uh, he asked me, he said, I know you were a close friend, so forgive me for how this question is going to sound, but he asked me, do you think, you know, those who ordered him killed made a mistake in doing so? And I responded that, you know, my answer is going to sound even more awkward. Uh, no, I don't think they did, because they killed the strongest one. They killed the best one of all of us. He was the most prominent, the most charismatic, the most effective opposition leader against Vladimir Putin's regime in so many different ways. I mean, he was, for example, instrumental in helping to convince US, the U.S. Congress to adopt the Magnitsky Law in yeah, so explain that, because this, this obviously is now an issue of current interest. A lot of the intrigue around the 2016 election, including the meeting in June between Donald Trump Jr. and others in the campaign and apparatchiks of the Russian government, was about uh, their fervent desire to repeal the Magnitsky Act. Explain uh, all of that. The Magnitsky Act is seen by the Kremlin as the biggest threat. What the Magnitsky Act does is it lay down, lays down a very simple principle, or at least what should be a very simple principle, that those people who are complicit in corruption and human rights abuses in their own countries will no longer be able to come to the U.S. to receive U.S. visas, to own U.S. assets, or to use the U.S. banking and financial system. Sounds really simple, right? The reason this is so terrifying for them is because, of course, that's, that's how they've lived for years. I mean, there's this fundamental and phenomenal hypocrisy and double standard right at the heart of the Putin system of power, where you have the people, the senior officials and the oligarchs in the Putin regime, 
who have for years been stealing in Russia, but spending in the West. The same people who have been abusing and attacking and undermining the most basic norms of the democracy and the rule of law in Russia have been themselves and for their families enjoying the protections and privileges provided by democracy and rule of law in Western countries, because it's in Western countries where they buy real estate, uh, hold bank accounts, send their children to school, send their wives and mistresses to live, go vacationing, go shopping, and all the rest of it. And of course, this is phenomenal hypocrisy on their side if they ever cared, but uh, what's, what's equally important, this constitutes enabling, in our view, by Western countries. Because if you welcome the perpetrators of corruption and human rights abuses in Russia, on your soil and in your banks, then you are in effect enabling corruption and human rights abuses in Russia. And the Magnitsky Act puts a stop to that. That was the principle behind the Magnitsky Law. And many of these people who are impacted by it are allies of Putin. Absolutely. Allies, the oligarchs, the closest cronies. I mean, in fact, you know, when Putin came to power, according to Forbes magazine, just to understand the magnitude of the problem, we had four dollar-term billionaires in Russia at the end of the 90s. Today we have more than 100, and the vast majority of them are close cronies of Vladimir Putin, either his old colleagues from the KGB, his old judo partners, his colleagues from the St. Petersburg City Hall, from the Ozirodacha Cooperative near St. Petersburg. And this is this is an astonishingly nepotistic regime where you have the people who have used their proximity to Putin to enrich themselves at the expense of, of the Russian people, at the expense of the Russian taxpayers. So, you know, for now, because of the system we have in Russia where, you know, these people control the entire state, including the judicial system, there is no way for now we can hold these people to account in our own country. So what the Magnitsky Act does is it holds them to account internationally. So, uh, you know, as, as I mentioned, they steal in Russia and spend in the West. So for now, there's nothing we can do through our state mechanisms yeah. to stop them from stealing you, in Russia, you, but we can stop them from stealing in the West. Speaking of the Magnitsky Act, the 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 uh, import of it, I mentioned this uh, uh, to, uh, to the Russians, was reflected in the meeting at Trump tower. Um, what do you make of that meeting? And um, how much of a, uh, how much do you, credence do you put in the notion that a bar, a bargain was being offered uh, uh, dirt on Hillary Clinton in exchange for uh, information? Uh, and, and I'm sorry, exchange for uh, repeal of the Magnitsky Act? I think this Trump Tower meeting shows primarily how important the Magnitsky Act is to the Putin regime and how important weakening it, uh, overturning it, potentially repeating it is how much of a priority that is for the Kremlin. I mean, they're not even making a secret out of it. That one of the first decrees that Vladimir Putin signed in, in May, on May 7th of 2012, when he officially returned to the presidency, was a decree outlining the tasks for the Russian foreign ministry and one of those tasks, this was written pen on paper by Putin himself, one of those tasks was to prevent the Magnitsky Act from coming into force in the United States. So they're saying it themselves. When the Magnitsky Law was passed in the US in December of 2012, the way Putin responded to it shocked even the most seasoned Kremlin watchers. And you remember how they responded yes. to it, right? They, they, they promised when the Magnitsky Act was being passed, they said, we're going to respond asymmetrically, of course, which is the only way they could, because, you know, not many U.S. government officials hold their pension savings in Russian banks yes. or own property on, on you know, in the Fair Krasnodar region. Yes. So the only way they could respond was asymmetrically. But the precise nature of their response, I think, was shocking to even the most seasoned Russia watchers. And what they did was in, in, in response for the United States, blacklisting specific human rights abusers from its territory. Putin introduced a blanket ban 
on U.S. citizens adopting Russian orphan children. Right. And including stopping the adoptions that were already in process. So the, the families had been already matched up with the kids, and that was stopped in the middle. And we know of at least two children who died in Russian orphanages as a result of, of, of not being uh, and th- able to this go is, and this join is the families. What, this is, you know, the White House put out a statement. Apparently the president helped author it saying that this meeting in June 6th of 2016 was about uh, Russian adoptions. Well, well, adoptions is the code word for the Magnitsky Act because right. that's the Kremlin, how the Kremlin tries to frame it. And I think if you need an image of the moral character of the Putin regime, or the lack of it rather, it, it would be that, that they responded to the blacklisting of human rights abusers by denying thousands of Russian children a second chance in life. And there's a prominent Russian journalist, Valery Panyushkin, who said at the time, uh, at, the, at the end of 2012, that he knows of only two organizations in the world that harm their own children to scare their opponents. One is Hamas, and the other is United Russia Party, which is led by Vladimir Putin. I can think of no better way of saying this. So in all of these many ways, the Kremlin has shown that reversing the Magnitsky Act is an absolute top priority for them, because that goes directly to their own personal financial interests. And so this meeting is in, in Trump Tower in, in, in the summer of 2016 was just another illustration that they're ready to do any avenues, any methods to try to get to this goal, including using unofficial proxies. I mean, much was made of the fact that, you know, Natalia Veselnitska, this lawyer who took part in the meeting from the Russian side, that she was not a government official. Well, first of all, as just a few days ago, there were documents that were published as part of the dossier project uh, at the Open Russia Organization, which is the organization where I'm the vice chairman. So it's the Russian pro-democracy movement. And one of our projects is specifically directed to kind of transparency and anti-corruption cases. It's called the dossier project. And some of the documents that we helped publish actually show that Veselnitska was in direct coordination, was acting in direct coordination with the Russian state prosecutor general's office. So which she she's now acknowledged. Yeah. Right. Uh, and she never actually even herself hid the fact that she's a close friend of Yuri Chaika, Putin's prosecutor general. So, okay, she doesn't hold any official government positions, but uh, you know the, the Soviets also, the KGB also was known to use unofficial proxies, unofficial kind of intermediaries uh, to go and, and do the you know the kind of one-off jobs that they, that they were asked to do. So, what does it say new. to you that 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 uh, that they took that meeting, that the Trump folks took that meeting? Again, I'm, I'm hesitant to comment on the on the U.S. domestic political developments, but I think you know, for me, the main message of the story, and when when the story broke out, uh, I mean, I, I was asked myself to comment on on several U.S. Mm-hmm. news networks about this, and and everybody was kind of focused on whether or not this constituted uh, collusion. Uh, you know, I leave that to to Americans mm-hmm. to decide. For me, the main story in this was how desperate the Kremlin regime is to try to overturn or weaken the Magnitsky Act. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You just won another big victory uh, in Britain, uh, where so much of that Russian money flows. Um, Talk about that. Britain is one of the most important countries to, to have the Magnitsky Act in, and we have worked there for years. In fact, just, just uh, a few days ago, I was in London for another hearing at Westminster, at the British Parliament. It was about human rights in Russia, and, and sp- I spoke again about the importance of putting a stop to this flow of corrupt, dirty money 
from the Putin regime to Great Britain. And on the f- on on the first of May, something absolutely astonishing happened. The British Parliament, by consent, by agreement between the Conservative and the Labour parties, has amended uh, the sanctions and anti-money laundering legislation to include the Magnitsky provision, to include the provision that those who are involved in gross human rights abuses abroad, not just in Russia, anywhere, um, will no longer be able to. Would come this to have the happened if uh, there had not been that nerve uh, agent attack onto? Russians in Britain, which which created an enormous amount of uh, anxiety there. I think it still would have, but it would probably have taken a longer a longer time than it did. I mean, it did take a long time anyway. We we have worked with British members of Parliament on this issue for years, uh, but I, I think it did help open a lot of people's eyes to the nature of the Putin regime. I, I mean, as if they needed another reminder. There's so many things have already happened on British soil, as you know. Several people. Who have, in one way or another, crossed the path of the of the Putin regime have died on British soil in the last several years. Of course, the most uh, well-known case is the case of Alexander Litvinenko in 2006, mm-hmm. a British citizen murdered on British soil using a radioactive substance, and the British government wanted to do nothing about it. They didn't want to have an inquiry. It took Marina Litvinenko, Alexander's widow, nine years, almost nine years, to go through the entire British judicial system to basically force the British government to have an inquiry on this. And as you know, this inquiry concluded that this uh, this assassination was likely carried out on the orders of, of the highest levels of Russian government. Um, but, you know, the, the UK has become now the sixth country in the world to pass the Magnitsky law. The United States was the first. Uh, the US passed the law in 2012. And on the day, so we spent almost three years working extensively with, uh, with members of Congress on both sides of the aisle to convince them to, to do this, to take this step. And Boris Nemtsov played an absolutely instrumental role. In fact, Senator John McCain has said publicly on the record that there wouldn't have been a Magnitsky Act in the US. He said that to me. Had it not been for yeah. Boris Nemtsov. That's an, I think that's an astonishing thing to say for a United States Senator. Not, not many people would say that. But I, I saw this with my own eyes. This was absolutely true. And on the day the Magnitsky uh, bill was being voted on in the US House of Representatives, where it passed with more than 80% support. This was November 16, 2012. Boris Nemtsov and I were sitting on the gallery in the U.S. House chamber in Washington, watching watching them vote on this bill. And Boris turned to me and said, this is the most pro-Russian law ever passed in any foreign country mm. because it holds to account the people who abuse the rights of Russian citizens and who steal the money of Russian taxpayers. And, you know, the Kremlin tries to present the Magnitsky Act as anti-Russian. There's nothing anti-Russian about holding to account the crooks and human rights abusers who steal from and who abuse the rights of Russian people. It's a pro-Russian law. And uh, in December of that same year, 2012, it was passed uh, in the U.S. Senate by 92 votes out of 100. I don't, I don't know many pieces of legislation nowadays that gets, gets such, a high, uh, has such a high support. And on December 6th uh, of 2012, it was signed by President Obama and became law. And since then... Uh, Canada, the three Baltic states, and now, as of the last few days, the United Kingdom have passed the same legislation. And we are continuing to work with other countries. I'll be in a few weeks, I'll be in, in Copenhagen to testify the Danish parliament in support of the same measure. We're also working with parliamentarians in the Netherlands, in Sweden, in Norway, in Australia, uh, many other countries, in, in an effort to convince more of the world's democracies to shut their doors to corrupt illicit money and to send a clear message that the crooks and the human rights abusers will no longer no longer be welcome on their soil. Vladimir, I'm sure people who are listening are, are wondering about your own safety and security and with good reason because there were two, uh, you survived two 
attempts on your own life. Uh, talk about that and, uh, and how it is that you continue to be as outspoken as you are uh, and, uh, and, and you're walking around. Not my favorite topic for conversation, as you can imagine. Yes. Uh, but when I say that I'm happy to be here, I really mean this in more yes. ways than one. Uh, yeah, and we're happy you're here too. <laughs> so I'm, um, there were two poisoning attempts uh, uh, on me. One was in 2015 in May, actually almost to the day, three months after Boris Nemtsov was killed. And the second one was just last year in 2017. Both of them were in Moscow, and both of them were done in exactly the same way. So this was some kind of a very strong and sophisticated toxic substance, uh, which knocked out all of my major body organs within a space of a few hours. I was on a multiple organ failure, I was in a coma and on life support, and both times uh, doctors told my wife that I had about a 5% chance to survive. Uh, so I certainly am very happy and very, very fortunate to uh, to be sitting here speaking with you today. Um, of course, I have no doubt that this was done as retribution for my political activities in Russian opposition, more specifically, I think, in retribution to my work on the Magnitsky Act, because that is the thing that, that, that they fear they fear most. Well, that's that's our reality. I mean, we know and we have known for a long time that it's that it, it's a dangerous vocation to engage in active political opposition to the Putin regime, to advocate for democracy and political freedom and the rule of law in Russia. Uh, we have known that it's a dangerous vocation to cross the path of of the Kremlin in in any way. I mean, there's been a strangely high mortality rate in recent years among the people who oppose Vladimir Putin, independent journalists, uh, civil society activists, anti-corruption campaigners, opposition activists, opposition leaders. Of course, the, the assassination of Boris Nemtsov in February of 2015 was the most brazen and the most high-profile political assassination in modern Russia. Uh, and so that's this. we know this is the reality. But You, know, you moved say, your family. Uh, yes, to my, the, family, to my family is in the U.S. And, and, and it's just, uh, you know, just for basic safety reasons. I mean, I have... I have the right to risk myself. I don't have the right to, to risk my family. So that's different. Yes, my family is, is outside of Russia, and actually, many, uh, many of our colleagues have, have had to do have had to do that. Not specifically, but your the family US, but lives with, with the reality that you go back and and uh, and you continue to put yourself in in uh, in an exposed position. Well, I I hope that when my children grow up, they'll understand why uh, I was doing this. And I mean, our oldest now is twelve years old, and I think she's she's beginning to understand somewhat already, but. Frankly, you know, part of why I'm doing this is because I want my children to be able to go back to, to a free and democratic Russia. I don't want them to grow up knowing that their country is ruled, you know, by kleptocratic authoritarian strongmen, by, by completely anachronistic regime. I mean, we're in the 21st century now. Russia is a European country. It's not okay to have one man clinging to power for two decades and stealing blind. I mean, that's, that's not the normal course of events. And, you know, when my, when my kids grow up and when, when as, as these things inevitably happen, when everybody understands everything about the nature of the Putin regime, you know, it happens like this always. When dictatorships fall, people look back and they see, well, how didn't we see that at the time? This was so obvious. And this will happen in Russia as well. And, you know, when my children grow up and they ask me, you know, Daddy, what did you do when all this was happening to our country? I want to have something to answer to them. Why do, why do they let you back into the country? Well, they can't. They can't not let me into the country. I'm a Russian citizen. I mean, how do you not let a citizen of the country into the country? So, uh, the, the, this but Putin <laughs> doesn't seem averse to finding uh, ways to 
So no, so I mean that they don't. The only person that they haven't actually let into the country is Vladimir Bukovsky, who's a legendary figure in the Soviet dissident movement, and he's uh, he, he's still. Uh, I mean, he's not as active now, uh, but he's uh, he's still he's still a very legendary figure and a very high authority for many people. They have actually stripped him of his Russian citizenship, which is not allowed by the Russian constitution. But as you as you rightly say, you know they don't care much for legal niceties. So he's the only person that they've done this to. Uh, as for the others, I mean, we see that there are different ways of dealing with people. I mean, a lot of people, of course, are wrongfully convicted and imprisoned uh, as political prisoners, according to the latest report by the Memorial Human Rights Center, which is uh, the, the most respected human rights organization in Russia. We have more than 100 political and religious prisoners in Russia today, in Russian prisons. So people who are in prison only for their political and religious views. This is this is a figure that's already approaching late Soviet numbers. And when Andrei Sakharov wrote his Nobel lecture in 1975, he listed 126 political prisoners in the Soviet Union. Today we have more than 100 in Russia. Um, so that, that's, that's of course, a preferred method. They, you know, there are many attacks, there is harassment, people are forced into exile, and of course, as we have just been discussing, many of our friends and colleagues have lost their lives in the last few years for opposing the regime. So that's, these are the ways that, that these are the things that usually happen to opponents. They haven't, they haven't really tried to keep anybody out. I mean, they I mean, it'll be even by their standards, it'd be difficult to do that. So they try to to deal with people another way. Well, what precautions do you have to take when you're in the country? Not much. I mean, what can I do? I can't not eat, not drink, not breathe. I mean, the the, the only practical thing I can do is to to have my family outside of Russia. That's mm-hmm. the only thing. Putin just got reelected. He uh, he jailed his his uh, Navalny, his most. Uh, uh, prominent potential opponent, which generally enhances your chances of victory. Um, what is the state of the democracy movement uh, in Russia and uh, and the civil society movement? And is there anything that gives you hope? Because Putin seems emboldened at this point. So, you know, dictators are usually very good at producing uh, high election results. Uh, Suharto had 75%, Mugabe had more than 90%, Ceausescu had uh, 99%, the remaining communist dictator in the last election, quote-unquote, he ever took part in. You know, it's it's really, I was going to say funny, but that's actually not funny, that's quite tragic that so much of the world media, including respectable world media, still refer to, you know, elections in Russia as elections, without quotation marks. And, you know, what you just said with a smile on your face that Putin was re-elected, many people say it seriously. Oh, yeah, Putin was re-elected. He got 76% of the vote. He's really popular among Russian citizens. Well, you know, it's not difficult It's not difficult to win when your opponents are not on the ballot. Yes. And there were two prominent opposition leaders in Russia who were planning to challenge Vladimir Putin this year in 2018. One was Boris Nemtsov, who was not on the ballot because he was killed three years ago. And the other was Alexei Navalny, the anti-corruption campaigner, who was not on the ballot because he was deliberately barred from running. With a court sentence, by the way, that was already overturned by the European Court of Human Rights. But as we've just been discussing, legal niceties is not what bothers the Putin regime usually. So, you know, if you take your opponents out beforehand, uh, it's, it's not difficult to win. And the, the, the meaning of this, uh, of this election we just had, so-called election we just had in March, is no greater than the meaning of elections we had in the Soviet Union with 99% of people voted for the Communist Party. You know, when, when, when the Communist regime collapsed, in three days in August of 1991. Not many people remember those 99%. So it's absolutely meaningless to talk about popularity and elections. And I think a much more meaningful picture of what's happening in Russia today 
are those mass protests that have been happening all across the country in this past year alone, beginning in March of 2017 and March of last year, when you have tens of thousands of people who are going out to the streets all across the country to voice their protest and the endemic corruption and the lack of accountability and transparency and the lack of free and fair elections and, you know, all the abuses and the policies of the Putin regime. And, you know, don't forget to go out to demonstrate against the government in, in Russia is not like to go and demonstrate against the administration here in the U.S. You know, here you have your First Amendment rights. You're protected by police when you go out and demonstrate against the president. In Russia, you're beaten up and arrested by police if yeah. you go and demonstrate against the government. I'll, and yet I'll, thousands I'll of people are doing interrupt it. you just at this point to say what should be obvious to anyone who's listening, which is um, we, we, have, we are blessed in this country, flawed as it may be, contentious as our politics can be, we are blessed with the uh, institutions of democracy uh, and the rights and guarantees that you speak of. And we ought not to take those for granted. And I think we sometimes do. Uh, and uh, so it, it, I'd be remiss if I, didn't, uh, if I didn't say that. I also want to ask you um, what your observations are. You, I know that you're, you're not a partisan figure here in this country, and you've worked with people of both parties. So I'm not asking you to way into American politics. But what do you, uh, talk about uh, the Russian intervention in the 2016 election. And, you know, what Putin would say, everything's r relativism with him. What he would say is, well, you know, Americans interfered in our election by supporting these pro-democracy uh, groups. So, uh, you know, why am I, I'm just, you know. Now, he wouldn't take, he obviously doesn't embrace some of the, some of the activities that went on as ordered by him, but generally speaking, his attitude as Americans were, you know, and our president some, somewhat supported that by saying we're no angels either. Um, what is your assessment of what was done? And is this something that is becoming more prevalent with Putin? Uh, he seems to have embraced the cyber tactics of the 21st century with, a, 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 with relish. Well, uh, first of all, as you rightly said, and I don't think it's my place to comment on the domestic uh, yes. political scene in the U.S. I think you have enough Russians trying to meddle in your domestic politics. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to be one more. Uh, but I will say that if it is indeed uh, proven as a result of all these investigations and probes and indictments and hearings that the Kremlin and, and the Putin regime has indeed interfered in the U.S. election in 2016, that frankly should not come as a surprise to anyone. And the, the, the Putin regime has been interfering in elections for years. The first elections they've began to interfere with were elections in Russia. Because, you know, when Putin came to power, we had democratic competitive elections in our country. Now we don't. They've made sure of that. So those were the first elections they've meddled with. And then increasingly they began to meddle into the affairs, political affairs of other countries. Initially the post-communist countries in our, on our perimeter, you know, Ukraine, Georgia, Moldova, the Baltic states. Um, then going further into Western Europe, for example, just a few years ago, uh, there was... And this is only from what we know from public information. Just imagine how many things we, we still don't know. But from what we know publicly, a few years ago, there was a multi-million euro loan issued from a Moscow-connected bank to the far-right Front National Party in France ahead of the French elections. And so if, if, if it's proven that he has tried to do the same here, that, that shouldn't surprise anybody. And I think it's also important well, to, to keep in mind. Well, Marine Le Pen actually visited with Putin a week before her election, uh, the last 
presidential election. He did, yeah. They're pretty open about it, yeah. actually. Uh, and I think what's also important to keep in mind, uh, which was, I think, something that in the initial years of Putin's regime, many Western leaders either ignored or, or, or chose not to notice, that the way the Kremlin behaves externally in foreign policy is a direct reflection of how it behaves domestically. Domestic repression and external aggression in Russia go hand in hand, always. And by the way, it goes both ways. So when, when Russia itself was striving for democracy in the early 90s, it also helped. President Yeltsin was instrumental, for example, in helping the Baltic states achieve independence from the Soviet Union. That's unimaginable today, but that's what happened because when Russia is democratic inside, it also behaves as a responsible citizen on the international stage. And the reverse is true. So a government that abuses and violates the rights of its own people and that violates its own laws and its own constitution, why should it respect international norms or the interests of, of, of the international order? It's not going to. And so, sure enough, you know, those leaders in the West who have for years been turning a blind eye on political repression in Russia, on election fraud in Russia, on media censorship in Russia, and, and all, all the rest of the abuses domestically, one day woke up to the first territorial annexation in Europe since the end of the Second World War, which is what Mr. Putin did in Crimea. Those things go together. And so, you know, there's been this kind of traditional line of argument by the advocates of so-called realpolitik, who say that, you know, when it comes to choosing between values and interest, uh, values and interests when it, when it comes to dealing, uh, the West dealing with Russia, the West should choose interest. Forget about values. Choose interest and, and do this kind of in a pragmatic way. Well, there is no conflict between interest and values because at the end of the day, uh, when Russia has a government that respects democracy, respects the rule of law, respects the rights of its own citizens at home, it will also become a responsible citizen on the international stage. So, of course, when democracy returns to Russia, this will be first and foremost to the benefit of us, of Russian citizens, but I think it will also be beneficial to the entire international community to have a government in Russia that respects the notions of democracy and rule of law at home. Vladimir, you are a brilliant and courageous person and- uh, Just stubborn, we always say that. We're well, just stubborn, stubborn is good. The rest is good too. Uh, and uh, all I can do is uh, thank you for for the fight you're waging and all of us uh, stand with you, or at least should. Uh, and uh, we, we, will, we will be watching and, uh, and, and hoping uh, that democracy does return. Thank you very much. It's, it's great to be on the program. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.